In case you missed it, this episode is marked explicit. This is your chance to hit pause and come back later. If you don't want my opinion, Episode 8, No Son of Mine, by Carl Marking. Monday, the day after I got home from Paul's place, the day after I'd stopped in to see Sarah and been asked to leave, I was playing solitaire at the kitchen table. My mother entered the room and sat down across from me. I had girlfriends that I was very close to when I was your age. I didn't think I was gay. That was a surprising opener, I thought. It's more than that, I said. She tried again. When my best friend moved in with me, we shared a bed for most of our senior year of high school. I loved her very much, but never felt I was gay. Because you weren't gay. If you were and you loved her, you would have felt differently. You're just confused. I'm not confused about a close friendship with another guy. But how do you know? No son of mine would be gay. I was tired. Tired of carrying secrets. Not just my own, but also my family's. I was tired of always feeling less than, and somehow incomplete. I was tired of pretending I was okay. I had spent the last two months feeling unsafe in my dorm room. And although I had finally come to feel safe at home, now that my father and brother were out of my day-to-day -day life, my mother took that away from me when she searched my room and found my letter to Paul, then threatened me that she would never accept me if I were gay. In that moment, sitting across the kitchen table from my mother, I didn't have the strength to hide or to pretend any longer. I closed my eyes. I know because I've had sex with men. It was both terrifying and freeing to say it to her. I opened my eyes. Hers were wide, while her lips were closed tightly in a flat, angry line. I held her gaze, slid my right hand across the table, palm up, offering it to her. And I liked it. That's how I know. She began to cry, stood up from the table, went into her bedroom, and closed her door. I left the house and drove away. I found myself at Ginger's. It was early in the evening and she was in her living room watching Jeopardy. I told her what had happened at school and with my mother. Carl, I say this with love. You make some truly self-destructive choices. I was taken off guard. How so? How did you end up with your current car? My grandmother bought it for me. After you totaled your last car while out joyriding and drinking, if I'm not mistaken. I had two beers over a couple of hours and hydroplaned into a ditch avoiding a deer. Still, not clear thinking. You've said many times this scholarship is your only way to get a four-year degree. From what you've told me, you spent most of your free time last semester either having sex with Michael or drinking with Ray and your friends. And at the end of the semester, you didn't pass any of your math courses while attending college on a math scholarship. She was holding up a difficult mirror to look into, but it reflected a number of truths. And you seem hell-bent on coming out when you say you have more important priorities to focus on. Ginger had the most logical mind of any of my friends. She never pushed like this unless the outcome mattered to her deeply. As difficult as it was to hear her evaluation of my behavior, I knew it was coming from a place of love. I don't say this to tear you down, but to shake you loose. You seem stuck. So you feel I shouldn't focus on being the person I know I am? You think I should hide myself from those who claim to be my friend? That I should lie to or hide from my mother? She offered her hand to me and I took it. No, she sighed. I honestly don't know what it's like for you to wrestle with this revelation, but I do know what it's like to hide something about yourself from everyone around you. I just don't want to see you lose something you've so often said is important to you. I also understand you're trying to be honest about who you are. Just think about the big picture. I worry that maybe you're unintentionally taking yourself off course by focusing on the wrong things. Her reasoning was sound. She was being her logical self, and we parted company on good terms. As I drove home, I thought about her words and wondered whether or not my drive to come out at that moment in time was some unwitting attempt at self-sabotage. By Thursday, 
Two days to the spring semester move-in day, Ray and I still hadn't spent any time alone together since the walk around Violet's neighborhood, New Year's Eve. I didn't know if he knew I had spoken with Sarah that Sunday, but I assumed Sarah had told Susan of my visit, and Susan had told him. I still didn't understand how I couldn't recall making the passes at him that everyone was up in arms about. I kept thinking about all the times Ray had put his hand in my back pocket if we were out walking and drinking, all the times he'd pantomimed having sex with me as he dry-humped my leg. The only thing that had changed was that he knew I was gay. The only thing that had changed was context. We finally connected, and because my mother was working second shift, agreed to meet at my place to catch up. I decided the only way for me to get him to understand my position was to let him read my journal. I had written most every day from the day I told him about my fight with my mother to the present. I had written all about the night I had come out to him, our New Year's Eve walk, my confusion about everyone shutting me out, and meeting with Sarah at her house. Hey, I said when I answered the door. Hey, he said back. Come on in. It was the first time he'd shown up at my house without beer. We went up to the living room and sat down. Sarah told me you think I made a pass at you the night I came out, I said, and that you drove all the way back to campus because you were so freaked out. I wasn't freaked out. I just didn't understand what happened or what to do about it. Here, I said. Is that your journal? Start reading at the post-it note. I got up and headed for the kitchen. Do you want a beer? Sure. I got him a beer and returned to the kitchen so he could read in private. He entered the room. I feel like such an idiot, he said. I thought you were seriously trying to kiss me. I had forgotten about dry humping you first. I remember now. It makes more sense. I don't lust after your body. You're skinny as hell and you have no ass to speak of. He laughed. And speaking of asses, what was all that about New Year's Eve? Dude, I was so wasted before we even started that walk. All I remember was thinking you were trying to grab my ass. You have no ass. I do tend to put my hand in your back pocket a lot, don't I? He asked. Only when you're drunk or stoned, but yeah, you may want to think about that. He chuckled. We sat at the kitchen table and started dissecting everything that had gone south with the group. I'm sorry, he said. This past month must have really sucked for you. It really did. But mostly I felt bad that you thought I'd made passes at you and didn't feel you could talk to me about it. I really fucked up, he said. You really did. I got us both another beer. I want to break up with Susan. What's going on? She's not going to be on campus anymore, so I'll only get to see her on weekends. And whenever we're together, she keeps laying guilt trips on me. About what? You know, I don't want to talk about her right now, he said and changed the subject to moving back into the dorms that coming Saturday. He finished his beer, headed home, and I went to bed. We agreed to arrive an hour early on move-in day to get the best parking in the best parts of the room. When we got our assignments, we learned we were in my old one and that our third roommate had withdrawn from school, so it was just going to be us. We dumped our things in the room and headed to the mall. Are you and Susan getting together this weekend? No, I told her not to come up. I want to get settled in before classes start Monday, and I feel you and I need to make up for lost time. I was surprised by how happy his comment made me. I felt as if I had my best friend back. I was thinking about what I read in your journal. If you hadn't told me you were gay just hours before that kiss, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. I knew it was an accident when it happened. I never brought it up to you because I hoped the issue would just fade away. Given he'd driven all the way back to campus and told Susan and Sarah what had happened, thinking it was an intentional pass, there was no way it would have just faded away. But he was trying, and I decided to leave it alone. Well, that certainly didn't happen, I said. I'm clearly the center of some storm the way Jonah, Violet, and Virginia have shut me out. When I stopped and saw Sarah last weekend, she acted as if I'd committed some crime against everyone. She wouldn't believe me when I said I hadn't made a pass at you. If they were really your friends, he offered. I kind of get it, though, I said. Everyone was moving to protect you and Susan in the face of thinking I was making passes at you and being deceitful. Susan? Why does she need protecting from you? Sarah told me Susan thinks I'm trying to break you two up 
that she sees me as competition for your time. Ray said nothing, which usually meant he was angry. Susan must have omitted that part of the story when she'd told Ray what Sarah and I had discussed. When we got back from the mall, we headed up to the room, not realizing we'd walked right by Susan and Virginia in the courtyard of the residence hall. Susan appeared in our doorway. She was pissed. Did you honestly not see us standing there? I didn't see you, Ray answered. We agreed we weren't going to hang out this weekend, so I wasn't looking for you. He was unfazed by her accusation. I'd seen him argue with his last girlfriend many times, and he was generally unflappable. Ignoring her, he started arranging his things. She looked to me for help. I felt bad for her, but with everything that had gone down over break, I was also annoyed with her and unwilling to help her out. I shrugged my shoulders and stayed out of it. She left the room without another word. I told Susan last night that you and I had talked and I had it all wrong, Ray said. I appreciate that. She said they spent winter break dissecting your every move and comment from last semester. They feel you betrayed them by lying about who you really are. So let me get this straight. Their position is that although I was literally in the act of figuring it all out, somehow I owed it to them to share something with them about myself before I even knew for sure it was true? Pretty much, he said, and hung a dartboard on the wall by the door. I really need to break up with her. Don't break up with her over me. That has to be her worst fear. It's not you. She's always on my ass about my drinking. Is that the guilt trip you mentioned the other night? Among many other trips, he said and started throwing darts. I went downstairs to move my car. Susan, Sarah, and Virginia were in the lobby. Hey, I said and started toward them. They collectively turned their backs to me. I guess I'm on everyone's shit list, I said to Ray when I got back to the room and told him what had happened. Like I said, if they were really your friends. The trouble is they were my friends, and I felt the loss of their friendship in my bones. I was annoyed at myself for how guilty I felt for not having told them sooner, even though I arrived at the realization very late in the semester. I had a dream about you last night, Ray said as we finished setting up the room. I'm not into you. Not that kind of dream, he laughed. We were talking about you being gay, and you said you weren't sure. And I said I'm glad you hadn't committed to anything because, you know, you're only 20. I had no response to that. The next day, Ray and I went to grab breakfast in the dining hall. Susan, Sarah, Virginia, and Jonah were eating at our usual table. And as we approached, everyone said hello to Ray, but not to me. Good morning, I said. Jonah was the only one who said good morning in response. Screw this, Ray said. Let's sit over there. Susan looked wounded, and everyone else suddenly found their plates worth their full attention. After breakfast, Susan came up to our room. Is this how it's going to be every weekend? She asked Ray. I assumed in reference to his not hanging out with her. I don't know about every weekend, but I told you this weekend, I was going to be mostly drunk and hang out with Carl. He was bordering on hostile, and it made me uncomfortable. I had clearly become the lightning rod for whatever was going on between them. Visibly upset, she left the room without another word. We spent the rest of the day playing darts and drinking. Inevitably, his hand went in my back pocket, and he dry-humped my hip while I was throwing darts. After everyone vilified me for allegedly hitting on Ray, his faux advances were no longer funny or innocent. It was the first time I felt uncomfortable that he did it. I had a campus counseling session that Wednesday. I wanted Julio's take on everything that had gone on over break and how quickly things had devolved among my friends. The only way I could have that discussion was to come out to him. I was not looking forward to it. I couldn't get past my fears about his most likely being Catholic and therefore biased against gay men. When I arrived for my session, the building was locked and there was a sign on the door reading, All counseling sessions canceled. Call to reschedule. Ridiculous, I said under my breath and went back to my room. Sarah made it clear I was not welcome in her room. Virginia maintained her angry silence. Susan was only around on weekends. And Jonah did his best to be neutral. One night, I left a note for Sarah on her door. I said something I knew would provoke her just enough that she'd want to say something to me in response. It was a complete manipulation on my part 
but it got us talking. We're still angry about the passes you made at Ray. He told you himself that he had that all wrong. Still, she said. Still, I thought. Either way, we all feel betrayed that you didn't tell us from the start that you were gay. You lied to all of us, and Virginia got hurt in the process. When I pointed out I hadn't known at the start of the semester whether I was or wasn't gay, and that she and Susan had more to do with Virginia being hurt than anything I had done, she wouldn't have it. I won't let you derail me with semantics, she said. My struggle around figuring out my sexual identity was hardly semantics, I thought. We're not your friends anymore, she said, and left the room. I had finally made my peace with who I was, and when the people I cared most about found out my truth, they rejected me and hid behind some claim that their rejection was my fault because I hadn't come out fast enough to suit them or in a way that made them comfortable. I was soul-sick. Susan came to campus Saturday. She and Ray watched TV all night in our room. She kept trying to engage him, but he remained mostly silent. At this point, Ray was my only remaining friend on campus, so I hung around as a sad third wheel and journaled. I think I may have made a mistake rooming with Ray, I wrote. He never wants to study. He can pressure me into doing anything, and he's getting increasingly handsy with me. He keeps dry-humping me when we're alone, even when he hasn't been drinking. He thinks it's hysterical, but I'm beginning to wonder if there may be more to it. It seems an odd choice for a straight guy to act out having sex with his gay friend. I had rescheduled my appointment with Julio, and this time the session was not canceled. When I arrived, he asked if he could record the session on cassette tape so his supervisor could evaluate his methodology. I didn't love that idea. I'd have no way of controlling who might listen. Knowing I was being taped, I was reluctant to say out loud that I was gay. I decided to give Julio a photocopy of the letter I'd written to Violet. It accomplished the same thing, and also provided all the background as to how I came to realize I was gay, and the high-level details of the relevant milestones through the prior semester. Once he finished reading it, he set it aside. Thank you for trusting me with this, he said. Being thanked seemed a hopeful start. How often do you cruise public bathrooms for sex, he asked. What? He repeated his question. Never. Why would you ask me that? The letter he'd just read laid out the majority of my sexual awakening and activities I'd engaged in with other guys. And his first follow-up question was to ask me if I cruised men's rooms for sex? His reaction was exactly the stereotype I had been afraid he'd assigned to me. I know that's how many gay men find partners to engage in sex, he said. Then you know more about it than me, I wanted to say. I didn't even know that was a thing. Gay men. His word choice set me on edge. I'd already been labeled in his mind. Not student. Not client. Gay man. At 20, I barely thought of myself as a man, let alone a gay man. I regretted opening up to him and wanted to run. My concerns about his being Catholic had been justified. I was speechless. He filled the void. Were you ever taught any morals? How did we get to questioning my morals? What the hell was happening? I wondered. Not knowing what to do or how to even answer that question, I said, only through negative examples. He concluded our session saying we could work on my morals. I'd always put faith in psychology. If I'd had the means, my original intention had been to become a psychologist, a choice neither of my parents supported. Even with no formal training, I knew his equating my sexual orientation with some sort of moral failing was inappropriate. I didn't schedule another visit. Instead, I started reading everything I could find on how to come out to friends and family, as that was my most pressing concern. Susan came down to spend the weekend before Valentine's Day with Ray. She'd lost a ton of weight since they'd started dating. It didn't suit her. As soon as she arrived that Friday afternoon, he began doing shots of Jack Daniels. Susan was having none of it and went down to Sarah's room. After a couple of hours of back-to-back -back shots, Ray was completely wasted. Why aren't you drinking? He demanded of me. I haven't even had dinner yet. It's too early to be... To be what? Wasted. Pussy, he said and left the room. Twenty minutes later, he was back. 
Well, I did it, he said. I just dumped Susan. As soon as I walked into the room, I told her I was tired of her coming up and ruining my weekends. She was all, but it's the only time we have to see each other. And you can visit with your friends during the week. I told her during the week I'm working and doing homework. I said when I come back home, I wouldn't mind seeing her, but that whenever she comes up here, I can't have any fun and I'm sick of it. Let's go to dinner, he said, and we left for the dining hall. He was like a new man, completely upbeat and all smiles. Just as we were finishing, Susan walked up to the table. Thanks for asking if I wanted to come to dinner with you guys, she said angrily and sat down at the next table over. You're welcome, Bray said and looked at me. Let's get out of here. We went back to the room and Ray continued to do shots. He'd almost finished the bottle. I was having a beer. About an hour later, Susan was at the door again. Her level of denial was unnerving. Ray was a complete ass to her, taunting her, making light of the whole situation, ignoring her existence while endlessly throwing darts. When he threw one intentionally at her, she stormed out of the room. Dude, that wasn't cool. Just tell her to go. Don't throw shit at her. Mind your fucking business, he shot back and threw a dart past my head at full strength. She was my friend before she was your girlfriend, I said. He said nothing and continued to throw darts. Susan came back with a girlfriend around 11. She received the same treatment, only this time Ray played I Didn't Mean to Turn You On by Robert Palmer on the CD player on repeat. She stayed listening to that song for an hour and finally left around midnight. The following week, a girl I'd gone to high school with, Joni, stopped by the dorm room looking for me. Her older brother was the guy who had been with Dan and I that night my mother caught us drunk outside my house. Ray came in, and as soon as she got one look at him, she instantly developed a crush on him and transitioned to his orbit. I got up and left the two of them alone. When I came back an hour later, she was sitting on Ray's bed. He was on his knees in front of her, holding her hands sweet-talking her. I turned around and left again. Susan did her best to hang on to Ray, but the whole thing unraveled within ten days of Valentine's Day. He was clearly interested in Joni, and his behavior had become increasingly toxic to everyone around him, including me. The phone rang one night when Ray was at work. I knew who it was. Hello, I said. I guess you know we've officially split up, Susan said. Yeah. I'm just going to say my piece. He's got a drug and alcohol problem, and the reason I was always such a drag in his eyes was because I was doing my best to throttle his drinking. He never did drugs around me, but I know you know what I'm talking about. I said nothing. And you've been drinking a lot more around him too, and, well, I just wanted to say that. She was getting choked up. I need to ask you one question, she said. Okay. Was he seeing Joni before he dumped me? Although Susan was in the you lied to us camp, I'd known her since high school and didn't believe she deserved the treatment Ray had given her. Not really, I said. She was here to see me when she'd come over, and they shared space by extension. He tried hitting on her, and they seemed to have chemistry, but that's as far as things went while you were together. So the whole thing, our relationship, it was just some kind of joke to him. And she started angry crying. Fat, short, ugly little Susan, she blurted out. He wasn't cheating on you, I offered. I could hear her crying on the other end of the line. I may not know all there is to know about Ray, but I've known Joni as long as I've known you, and I know she wouldn't do that to someone. She gently hung up the phone. I thought about what Susan had said. My drinking was definitely up since Ray and I moved in together. We actually began fighting about it. He wanted to get drunk every single night, and I didn't. I caught up with him one night while he was in a clear headspace. I'm worried about you, I said. You sound like Susan. I'm trying to sound like a friend. What are you worried about? I think you know. He was quiet. I made an appointment with a counseling center, okay? Good. You're not yourself lately. I'm not going to harp on you, but you were an ass to Susan in the end, and you've been an ass to me. I've got enough on my plate, and I miss my friend. When's your appointment? Next week. I'm glad you're going. 
I packed up my stuff and left for the library to study. In the run-up to his counseling appointment, he was absent from the room more often than not. When I did see him, he was either drinking or, I assumed, high on coke, based on his energy. I had finally figured out what coked-out Ray looked like. I had seen him often since we met. I just hadn't realized it until then. In the end, he blew off his appointment with the counseling center. My world had become small. I went from having a robust peer support system at school to being an outcast and branded a liar. I didn't know what to do about Ray after he blew off his counseling session. He had grown dark and brooding and was rarely around. Feeling as if I had no other options and needing someone to talk to, I made an appointment to see Julio. When I arrived for our session, his approach was completely different. He was less judgmental, more objective, and listened. He must have gotten feedback from his advisor. The session ended, and before leaving, I decided to give him my journal from the fall semester. It was an impulse decision of last resort. He suggested I schedule our next session for 90 minutes. I spent the next week studying. I was finally on track in my math classes, and when I wasn't studying, I was doing research on how to come out to my family. I had decided it was time. Although Ginger had my best interests at heart when she advised patience and that I should focus more on school, she didn't have the full picture of my history or an appreciation for the impact that hiding such a core part of myself had on my daily life. I believed my choices were to lie to everyone I met the rest of my time in school, isolate myself to avoid the matter entirely, or embrace the truth and live in the world as the person I was born to be. In the reading I was doing, some consistent themes emerged. Don't come out at an emotionally charged holiday like Thanksgiving or Christmas. And don't come out to just one member of the family. Doing so creates a secret and leaves the person you tell with no one to discuss the matter with. Using the last semester as an example, and my friends as the model for my family, I saw the wisdom in that advice. I decided Easter was the best time to do it, as it was the only time before next year's Thanksgiving that my mother, brother, sister, and I would be together for sure in the same space. Julio began our next session from an unexpected place. I assumed the visit would be about my struggle with my sexual identity, but he surprised me. In reading your journal, you mention repeatedly that you don't let yourself get angry. Why is that? I guess I look at anger as a kind of rejection. If I'm angry with someone, I'm rejecting them. I'm also afraid of losing myself, losing my control in my anger. What do you do with your anger? I turn it on myself. I'm okay beating myself up, but I wouldn't want to hurt someone with my anger. He leaned forward in his chair. Aren't you someone? How do you mean? You said you don't want to hurt someone with your anger, so you turn it on yourself and hurt yourself. But aren't you someone? Why is it okay to hurt yourself, but not okay to hurt someone else? I'd never thought of it in those terms. I'm afraid if I really get angry and let it out, I'll hurt someone. Physically. That's what my brother and father always did. They'd get angry and physically attack one of us. Have you ever shown anyone your anger? Annoyance, sure, but not rage. Have you ever lifted a hand to intentionally physically hurt someone? No. Then why do you think you can't control it or that it will destroy someone? I didn't have an answer. Your fear is irrational. You must start releasing your anger. When someone upsets you, tell them. Use your sense of humor and let them know they made you angry. This won't destroy them. I must have looked skeptical. I know you won't be able to do this right away, but try. For you. So I did. On Ray. The next time he showed up in the room. He did not like it. When he went to dry hump my leg, I told him to knock it off. When he suggested we out to the bar, I said I wanted to study. When he asked me to go with him to the liquor store, I said no. He definitely did not like that I told him no. 
He didn't like that I'd started setting boundaries and suddenly had my own ideas regarding what I wanted to do. I'd always just gone along before. Suddenly I was just like Susan and a downer and holding him back. As I held my ground, Ray was in the room and on campus less. As a result, I was studying more. One of the books I read about coming out suggested writing a letter to the person, even if the intention was to tell them verbally. By writing down what I intended to say, it would give the person the opportunity to read and reread my words, rather than making them rely on a memory of what they thought I'd said. It would also help me get my thoughts together. I was instinctively a letter writer, so it seemed like good advice. I spent the coming week working out letters to give to my brother, sister, and mother. I knew if I tried to tell them, verbally, simultaneously, I wouldn't be able to get through it. I decided my siblings would just get a letter, which I'd give to them as they left to go home after Easter dinner, and that I'd tell my mother face to face and leave her letter behind for her to read. Each letter had the same overall message, but was tailored to our individual relationships. I ended each letter by thanking them for reading it, inviting them to talk to me about it, and letting them each know I'd told the other two so they could talk to one another if they wanted to. Easter weekend arrived. My brother was stoned and my sister looked sick. She was gaunt from her continued weight loss. I was on edge but had made up my mind. I couldn't go on evading questions and pretending everything was fine. Everything was not fine. We had our traditional Easter dinner, which unfolded in the usual way, bickering and trauma stories rooted in our father's abuse and behavior. As soon as it was time to clear the table and clean up, my brother stood to leave, as was his pattern. I tucked his letter in with his clean laundry and walked him out. I put a letter in your laundry basket. Read it when you get home, I said as he got into his car. He and I barely had a relationship at this point, so I turned and went back inside. My sister and I helped our mom clear the table and do dishes. As she was getting ready to leave, I went into my room, grabbed her letter, and saw her out. Read this when you get home, I said as she got into her car. What is it? It's me. Just read it, I said, and told her to drive safely. What was all that about? My mother asked. You don't usually see them off. What was it that you got from your room to give your sister? I went into my room grabbed my hamper of clean laundry, and put it on the landing by the front door. The letter to my mother was tucked under a sweatshirt. I went back up the short set of steps and into the living room. She was sitting on the sofa that faced the stairs, watching TV. I sat on the Lazy Boy rocker across from her and turned the TV off. Hey, I was watching that. Mom, there's something I need to tell you. She looked stricken. I think she knew what I was about to say. I love you very much, and I'm gay. She put her left hand over her mouth and started to silently cry, tears running down her face. We shared space as she did so. Life is already hard enough, she said through her tears. Why do you have to be gay? I don't have to be gay. I'm just gay. I've always been gay. Stop saying that! She began to cry harder drawing ragged breaths. Whatever you do, don't tell your grandmother. It would kill her. And then I started to cry. I didn't believe her. My grandmother had been the single most positive force in my life. She'd said it to be hurtful. How could you do this to me? She said and began sobbing. She lay down on the sofa, facing the ceiling, and began to wail. I stood up and took a step toward her. No, she said, looking in my direction. I stopped in my tracks. Mom, I said through my tears. Both her hands were covering her face, and she continued to wail. I turned around and started down the short flight of steps to the front door. You were the joy of my life, she called out. I stopped, having only gone down one step. The past tense of her remark rang in my ears. I turned to look at her, tears streaming down both our faces. You make me sick, she said. I wish you were dead. I began to sob.
No, no, she said, as if rejecting some internal compromise she'd tried to make with herself as she sat up on the sofa. If you can't live the way I want you to live, you are not welcome to live in my home. I stumbled down the last few steps to the landing. When you're dying of AIDS, she called out loudly, don't come crying to me. I won't be there for you. It felt as if she'd hurled a curse at me. Tears were flowing down my cheeks, and my heart physically hurt with every beat. I took the letter I'd written her out of my hamper, put it on the staircase, and left her home. I drove away, sobbing. I had no idea what to do or where to go, and was completely out of my body. My mother had wished me dead from AIDS, the disease I feared more than anything else. I was abandoned rejected by both my parents. I felt unlovable, disposable, and broken. With no memory of having driven there, I was parked in the driveway alongside Ginger's house, sitting behind the wheel, the engine running, staring straight ahead in stasis. Ginger knocked gently on my car window. I turned toward her, tears streaming down my face. She opened my car door, I looked at her unable to speak. Come inside, she said gently. I followed her into her kitchen. My mom is here. She's in the living room. Go have a seat. By the looks of things, they had just finished Easter dinner. I put my jacket on the back of one of the kitchen chairs and went into the living room. Honey, what's wrong? Grace asked. My mom, I began, and then started crying so hard I couldn't say another word. Ginger came into the room and gave me a glass of ice water and a box of tissues. Do you want me to tell my mom what's been going on? I nodded my head and wiped the tears from my eyes. Ginger took Grace through my journey to date, from first telling Ginger I thought I was gay, to coming out to my friends at school, and how they'd turned their backs on me. Grace put her hand on her heart and gave me a sad smile. I take it there's been a new development, Ginger stated as a fact. In between bouts of tears, I told them what had just happened. I can't believe my mother would wish me dead. From AIDS. Oh, honey, Grace said, leaning toward me in her chair. No mother should speak such hurtful words to their child. Do you think she'll calm down? Ginger asked. She's had years to prepare for this. She first asked me if I was a faggot when I was in eighth grade. She cannot unspeak, wishing me dead from AIDS. We sat in silence. She said to me that life was hard enough without being gay, and then she chose in that moment to make it as hard for me as she possibly could. I began to cry. What do you need? Grace asked. I have no idea, I said, pulling myself together. There is nothing to say or do, and we sat quietly together for almost half an hour. I stood up to leave. What are you going to do? Grace asked. Go back to campus. There's nothing else to do. I have to keep moving or I'm afraid I won't ever move again. Can I give you a hug, honey? Grace asked. I nodded. As she hugged me, she whispered in my ear, You're such a dear young man. Don't let your mother's poison into your heart. She gave me a final squeeze and released me. I called Paul to see if he had any words of advice and got his machine. I didn't bother to leave a message. I would have just started crying again, and I was tired of crying. I looked around the empty room and thought about how much had changed in the short time since we'd moved in. There was a box of Ivan's spiced wafer cookies on Ray's desk. We would eat our way through a box together while drinking and playing darts. I crossed the room, picked up the box, threw it in the trash, and crawled into bed. My mother's words played on a loop as hot tears ran down my face and onto my pillow. I cried myself to sleep. I met Joy for coffee and a muffin that Tuesday morning. You're awfully quiet today, she said. I was deciding how much I wanted to share with her. I didn't have the best weekend. Easter dinner? Your family is something from what I've put together over the last few years. I picked at my muffin. My mother told me I wasn't welcome in her home anymore, so... I've got to figure out what that looks like going forward. Oh, Carl, she said, and went to put her hand on mine, 
but stopped herself. She seemed always conscious of being careful not to mother me. What are you going to do? I don't know. I looked her in the eyes and could feel the tears begin to well from having made eye contact, and so I looked away. I stared out the glass front of the building. I'll stay on campus for as long as I can. I'll focus on school, and I'll figure the rest out as it comes. We sat together quietly. I can't imagine ever doing that to any of my children. I looked back at her. I can't imagine you ever doing that either. Until two days ago, I couldn't imagine my own mother doing it. In my wildest dreams, I never saw that coming. I'm such an idiot. You are not an idiot, she said firmly. Expecting love from your parents should be a given. Can I ask what happened? I looked at the clock and used the time to evade her question. We'd better get going or we'll both be late to class. She gave me a look that said, I know what you're doing right now, but she let it go. I was settled in my dorm room for the night when the phone rang. Hello? It was my brother. It was also the first time in our lives that he had ever called me. You've really upset Mom with this stunt. She's been crying ever since. He sounded oddly happy about it. It's not a stunt. Well, whatever. Personally, I don't care what you are. I was surprised by his attitude. Just as I thought that perhaps some positive change between my brother and I could come out of this mess, he said. I told Dad. He said to tell you he always knew you'd be a faggot. And he hung up the phone. I could hear the satisfaction in his voice at being able to deliver that message to me. I began to shake and could feel myself slipping into depression. I felt completely alone. No pack of friends. No Ray. I had no idea what hole he'd climbed into. I was turning all of my anger and fear inward on myself. My innermost fear of being unlovable had been specifically confirmed by my father years earlier, and now by my mother. The things my inner voice was saying to me were not helpful, but felt absolutely true. You are broken. You are such an idiot. You are so naive. You are useless. You are unlovable. No one loves you. Even you don't love you. A couple of days later, there was a note in Ray's handwriting on my desk. I guess he still lives here some of the time, I thought. Call your sister, it read. I called her that night. Mom is really upset, she started. I didn't say anything. I doubted our mother had told her what she'd said to me, and if I told her, she would move to defend our mother and say something like, Mom wouldn't say that. I didn't have it in me to fight with her. I read your letter. And? I guess my only problem with your being gay is that it's an affront against God and nature. I was momentarily stunned into silence. My sister hadn't set foot in a church outside of Christmas for the singing since she was a teenager. And then I was pissed. At least it's not a mortal sin, I shot back. I beg your pardon? Isn't he married? I asked, referring to the man she'd been seeing the man she was slowly killing herself for. He's getting divorced, she said. Getting divorced isn't the same thing as being divorced, I snapped. She slammed the phone down. I did the same, then threw it across the room. I leaned against the wall, slid down to the floor, and began sobbing. Spring break arrived. I spent the time between an empty campus and Paul's place. He didn't have any silver bullet advice to give. I was slipping into an emotional tailspin. My life felt fractured and disconnected from reality. I had two months of school, room, and board. And then what? Where will I live then? I asked myself. I spent a great deal of time after Easter replaying my mother's words. I wish you were dead. Most days, I wished I was dead too. What was I fighting for? As I worked harder to be my true self, I was met with more rejection, more heartache, more pain. I concluded if my own family wouldn't support my being gay, no school system would either. People were terrified of AIDS and by extension, gay men. Given gay men were also widely believed to be pedophiles, I would be expected to keep it quiet, 
or go back into the closet entirely. I knew, given how much coming out had cost me, I could not go back into the closet. I refused to yield any of the ground I'd gained as I discovered and revealed my true self. And with that conclusion, I realized my time in college was over. I stopped trying to fit into a career track I felt didn't want me in the first place and stopped going to my math classes. My higher-level thinking wasn't exactly firing on all cylinders since being wished dead by my own mother. I stopped seeing Julio. Didn't anyone teach me any morals? Compared to my family and the pack of friends who had collectively turned their backs on me, I felt my morals were just fine. I was grateful for his insight about my being somebody. It lit a small flame deep inside me that helped me survive. But overall, that counseling experience wasn't as safe, consistent, or nurturing as I needed it to be. I probably could have asked for another counselor, but I didn't have any fight left, and I couldn't go through the coming out and disclosure phase again with someone new. I heard Jonah needed a ride home one weekend, and because I appreciated that he'd done his best to stay neutral through everything, I offered him a lift. He declined. He didn't want anyone to think he was gay for accepting a ride from me. His rejection was surprisingly painful. Life had kept us together for almost seven years through high school, work, and college, but my reputation on campus had become so toxic he couldn't even spend 45 minutes in a car with me. He was the last of my childhood friends to turn away from me. And then there were none. In an effort to keep my shit together, I cherry-picked my remaining college experience. I had signed up for ballroom dance class as my phys ed elective that semester and discovered I was surprisingly good at it. I looked forward to every class. While dancing, I thought of nothing but music and movement and felt safe and happy. I was tempted to stop going to classes altogether and get a job while living on campus, but part of me felt I could always use the credits somewhere else someday. As such, I kept attending my writing course because it was effortless and gave me positive reinforcement. I also kept attending a course on special education because it was heavy in psychology, a topic I loved. I kept hearing my mother's voice in my head. When you're dying of AIDS, don't come crying back to me. So I scheduled an AIDS test at a clinic near the campus. Although Michael and I had always been safe, I hadn't been tested since we started seeing each other and I needed the reassurance. One night, just before finals, the phone rang. Hey, Ginger, I answered. You know that's unnerving as hell when you do that, don't you? Yeah, but I love it when it works. There's a very small number of people calling me these days, so the odds were in my favor. Plus, I knew it was you. How are you holding up? Okay, all things considered. I have no friends here. I spend way too much time alone, worrying about literally everything. I wanted to call and wish you good luck on your finals. Thanks, but I've decided I won't be coming back. I'm sorry to hear that. I know how much college means to you. Does it? Doesn't it? I don't know whose life I'm trying to live anymore. I stopped going to both my math classes, so there'll be no scholarship next year. She stayed quiet and waited me out. It's for the best. I don't want to be a teacher if I can't be who I am. I don't want to be anything if I can't be who I am. I know you were hoping I could put a pin in it for my own sake, but I needed to do this. Coming out has cost me too much, and I can't settle for less than finding a career where I can be myself with no more hiding. If only your mother hadn't kicked you out. If wishes were horses, all beggars would ride, I said. What? Oh, it's something my father would say any time we said we wished for something to be different than it was. It's just, I've taken the if-only scenarios as far as they can go. I am where I am. I was faking my level of acceptance of things. Internally, I was terrified and clueless. What are you going to do when you have to move out of the dorms? I honestly have no idea. Find someone looking for a roommate and get a job, I guess. I could use a roommate. Really? I've been promoted, and I'll have to travel most days. I'll need someone to look out for Misty, her cat. Plus, it would give me peace of mind to have someone in the house while I'm out of town. I wouldn't be able to pay you much. I don't have a job lined up yet. Nothing is exactly what I was going to charge you. I felt myself relax. I had no idea where I was going to go when the semester ended. You're such a good friend to me, Ginger. 
You're truly a lifesaver. And you're the younger brother I never wanted, and finally have. We laughed. We can work out the details when the semester is finished. For what it's worth, good luck on finals. The Thursday of finals week, I had my last dance class. Afterward, a girl in the class, Karen, approached me. She was very tall, and given I was six foot four and the teacher's assistant, we would usually pair up during class. Would you mind walking me to my car? She asked. When I hesitated, she quickly said, Oh, I've seen the way you watch Steve's ass when he's dancing. We're good. Steve was the other teacher's assistant. It's nice, right? Very. But he's too short for me. We laughed. Okay, I'll walk you to your car. I really enjoyed the class, she began as we walked along the footpath to the parking garage. I've always been so self-conscious about my height, especially when it comes to dancing with a man. I wanted to tell you how much I've enjoyed the class and my time dancing with you. It may seem silly, but there you have it. It isn't silly. I've had a miserable year, and it means a lot to me that something so simple made you so happy. We reached the garage. Want to do something absolutely ridiculous? I asked. That depends. Come on, I said and began running up the steps of the garage. She followed me to the top floor. That's my car over there. I had parked far away from everyone else, and the campus had been emptying out as finals wrapped up throughout the week, so there weren't many cars. Want to dance? I asked. Yes! I opened both car doors, popped the rear hatch, and turned the radio up as loud as it would go, just as the song She Drives Me Crazy by the Fine Young Cannibals came on. We used it in class all the time. And there, on the top floor of the parking garage, I made the happiest memory of my entire time on campus, dancing with a relative stranger. When I got back to the dorm room, Ray's things were gone. I packed up my stuff, loaded my car, and left for Ginger's house. Toward the end of my first week at Ginger's, there was a message from her mom on the machine. Carl, it's Grace. I'm making us dinner. Be here by six. This part of the county was nothing but farms and meadowlands filled with wildflowers. I picked these along the way, I said, and presented a bouquet of flowers to Grace at her door. Aren't you just a delight? Come in and have a seat in the kitchen while I put these in some water. There's beer in the fridge, if you'd like. I grabbed a can of Budweiser and sat down. Putting the flowers on the table, she said, I'd say your mama raised you right, but from all I've come to learn this year, perhaps you got your heart somewhere else. I sipped my beer. Hot dogs okay with you? She asked as she filled a pan with water. I made some potato salad over the weekend and thought we'd keep it simple. Dogs, greens, and potato salad. Sounds great. It was a warm, clear evening, and we ate outside at her picnic table. Normally I'd have grilled these, but I didn't have time to stop for briquettes. Boiled dogs are fine. I appreciate the company as much as the food. I forgot the sauerkraut, she said and dashed back inside the house. Food on plates, we made small talk as we ate. We talked about Ginger's new job and the weather. It felt as if we were talking about nothing, to avoid talking about something. Ginger tells me you may be working at a dance studio. How exciting. It's certainly something I never imagined doing. It's good to try new things, she said. It keeps our hearts open. After some time, quietly eating our dinner, she asked, How are things with your mother? No change. She put her hand on her heart. I just can't wrap my head around it. No contact at all? None. Who knows? She may have tried to call me at school, but we didn't have an answering machine, and my roommate was never around. She could have written to me, but didn't. There's been nothing. All of my friendships faded away after I told everyone I was gay. She doesn't know you or Ginger. I have to imagine she has no idea where I am. I can't imagine. I'd be absolutely sick with worry. I had no response. How are you holding up? If the dancing thing doesn't work out, I'll find something else. I have an associate degree in data processing, and computers certainly aren't going away. Tons of people do just fine, with less education and less opportunity. She looked at me and smiled. That's what you're going to do, sweetheart. I'm asking how you're doing. I got a lump in my throat. 
I'm making a choice to keep on keeping on as best I can. It makes me sick to my stomach if I think about it too much. I just never thought, well, how could you have? Can we change the topic? I asked. Of course. Tell me all about how you came to be working at a dance studio. We spent the next hour enjoying the warm evening air and one another's company. I told her about taking dance at the university and auditioning at a local dance studio. And she told me of her late husband. The way she saw me when she looked at me reminded me of my grandmother, my mother's mother, which made me smile. Epilogue From the moment a parent finds out they're having a child, they begin imagining how that child's life will unfold. They create an entire narrative around what that life should look like, from school to career to having their own family one day, and usually that is a family with children of their own. These expectations are as much wishes and hopes as anything else, and are formed subconsciously for the most part. The danger in expectations is that when they go unmet, they often lead to discord and dissatisfaction. Once a life is brought into the world, however it arrives, it belongs to that life and to no one else. When I came out to my mother, she experienced shame, and I think also sorrow. Most of the expectations she had carried for me would never be realized. It was a kind of death for her, as much as it was a birth for me. So what happened next? I never reconciled with the pack from college. I found Jonah and Ray on social media a generation later. Jonah remembered my coming out to him that night in the parking lot of our local Kmart, but nothing about Towson. Ray apologized for not handling things better, for disappearing on me, then disappeared on me again. The rest? I don't know. I never spoke with Sarah, Susan, Violet, or Virginia again after they turned their backs on me. As you know, Milton is dead. So are Howie, Michael's partner at the time, and Ken, the pastor's son. Grace developed breast cancer and went into remission long enough to lose her daughter, Ginger, to the same disease, then died of it herself a few years later. I was fortunate to have been able to speak at Ginger's funeral. I told everyone how she had saved my life and how grateful I was to her and her mother. It was the last time I saw Grace. A few years ago, I got an email from my mother. The subject line read, Death Notice. And in the body of the message, she wrote just one word. Michael. There was no link to his obituary, no additional context, but I knew who she meant. I had made my peace with her passive-aggressive callousness by then, and although I was saddened by the news, I didn't let her delivery hurt me. At this point, her behavior is a well-established, known constant, she rarely hurts or surprises me anymore. My relationship with my brother was all but non-existent by the time I came out. When he married, I tried once more to build a bridge to him, but cut him out almost completely when he had his son and tried to barter with me for access to him. If you want to spend time with your nephew, I want you to fill in the blank. I wasn't willing to engage in that kind of crazy and hoped one day, when my nephew was older, we'd be able to build a relationship on our own. So far, that hasn't happened. When my first serious, years-long relationship ended, my sister called my ex to see how he was doing before calling me. It was such a betrayal to me. That kind of behavior manifested in any number of ways and eventually eroded what was left of our relationship, and I let go. My father, once he disowned me when I was a teenager, that was that. He died almost a decade ago as of the writing of this story. The day after he died, as I woke up at my husband Jim's house, I got an email from my mother with the subject line, Ron died today. The body of the email was empty. I told Jim what it said, and he looked at me with apprehension and concern, waiting for me to have some kind of emotional reaction to the news. Jim, whatever it is you think is going to happen, it's not. I mourned the loss of my father many years ago. I've cried all the tears I had for him and our relationship. I'm okay. Relieved, actually. Relieved? 
he asked, surprised. I can finally stop worrying about running into him or him reaching out to me for some reason. I can finally relax. And I did. Something I had been carrying in my gut for most of my life uncoiled when I read the subject line of my mother's email. His death gave me a closure to our relationship that I didn't know I needed. My mother is a wounded narcissist. There's not much to work with when you're dealing with a narcissist. How could you do this to me? I heard that at every key trauma in my life. We never managed to repair our relationship, and eventually I had to let her go to save myself and to live my life free from her hurtful woundedness. The story my mother tells people to explain my absence from her life is that I hate her. Every letter I wrote her over the last three decades as I tried to hold up a mirror, as I tried to revisit and repair our relationship, she refers to as hate mail. One of the last times we spoke, she told me, When I die, I've asked your sister to send you all the hate mail you've written me over the years. I suggested she simply throw it away if she got nothing from it. Now, I think if it does arrive, I'll turn it into a book. A parental cautionary tale. I had lunch recently with Joy. It was the first time we'd seen each other since that last semester we were at Towson together. Thirty-four years had gone by, and it was as if not a day had passed in the way we related to one another. I brought her up to speed on all the things that had happened after I'd left Towson. Looking back, she began, what was it that allowed you to finally take control of your future? I thought for a minute. It was when my mother threw me out of my house and wished me dead. She was surprised. It forced me to find my way. It pushed me to see a professional therapist. It showed me I could stand on my own two feet as my authentic self and survive. Thriving came very much later. When we finished lunch, we were saying our goodbyes in front of the restaurant. She told me she'd missed me terribly over the years and had always loved me. You were one of my favorite people. I was so sad when you disappeared from my life. I could tell she was carrying pain relevant to her parting all those years ago, as if my disappearance was somehow a rejection of her. I want to be clear with you, I said. My disappearing had nothing to do with you and was not a reflection on our friendship. I simply didn't have anything left for anyone. I had to put every bit of energy I had into myself. I'm sorry I hurt you. I didn't mean to. But I don't think I'd be here today if I'd done anything differently. We gave each other a long hug and are once again in regular contact. The summer of the year my mother threw me out, I was in another musical at the theater. One day after rehearsals, I got into my car, and she had slipped a letter through the window I'd left cracked open for the heat to escape. She is not capable of apology. An apology requires the ability to hold a mirror up to yourself and look at your actions. An apology requires an understanding of the impact your actions had on the other person and to feel empathy for them. Narcissists suffer a profound lack of empathy for others. Her apology began, I'm sorry if you... When you give an apology that contains the word if, it's not an apology. When you give an apology that has something like, I'm sorry that you... It's not an apology. It's a deflection. You're sidestepping accountability and are putting the blame for the other person's reaction to your behavior or failing squarely on the person to whom you should be apologizing. Her apology went on to say, you said some pretty ugly things, too. All I said was, I'm gay, and I love you. In the letter, she went on to say that she missed me, which I believed, and that she'd welcome me back home, so long as we didn't have to talk about it. Ginger was as supportive and gracious as anyone could have been, but she also lived in a very rural area. I was commuting almost an hour each way to work, and she wasn't close to any of the colleges I could afford on my own. It had been five months since my mother had thrown me out, and I'd been living with Ginger for three of them. It was time to move forward, and I decided I need to focus on my goal of finishing college. Moving back in with my mother would cut my commute time by more than half and put me closer to two colleges I could afford. So I agreed to move home. The whole 
not talking about it rule left a constant tension between us, and I moved out not long after I'd moved in. I found a cheap, crap apartment, minutes from work, and lived off hot dogs and craft macaroni and cheese. Then someone broke into my place. Being robbed was surprisingly violating, and I realized I was going to have to make living at home work. I moved back in one last time, worked my way through college, earned my bachelor's degree, and graduated with honors. Would I do anything differently? No. It's a dangerous game to indulge in, if only, scenarios. If only I hadn't been sexually and physically abused. If only I hadn't been raped. Do I wish those things hadn't happened? Of course. But I couldn't be sure I'd be who I am today if those things hadn't happened. And as I've said, I really love who I am today. I'm so proud of the work I've done to be the me I am. I came across a simple but powerful concept in a book recently. It was written by a Holocaust survivor turned psychologist, Dr. Edith Eager. Instead of asking, why me? Ask yourself, what now? Why not you? What matters is what comes next. I did a lot of that questioning instinctively as I went through life. I focused on what was next. Asking yourself, what now? will shift your thinking in surprising ways. It's far more helpful to move forward than to stay stuck. So that's my coming out journey. 34 years later, and I'm still coming out. As I said at the start, it's a never-ending, iterative, awkward process. Coming out is not only about one's sexual or gender identity. We're all carrying some burden or secret that we may one day need to tell someone even if just to say it out loud to another living soul. That, too, is a form of coming out. So let's have some grace for one another. We're all human. I'll close with something I've said before. Be someone's just the right person at just the right time. Be someone's buoy in the water 